0: First Samuel chapter 1, there's a, a story of a small European city called Feldkirk that did not know where to turn in 1799 when Napoleon's armies were about to attack the city. And the story goes that it was Easter Sunday, and the town had come together to try to decide what to do, and finally one of the church leaders said, my brothers, it's Easter day we've been reckoning on our own strength and that fails let us turn to God ring the bells and have services as usual and leave the matter in God's hands the people agreed and when Napoleon's army heard the church bells ring suddenly they broke up camp and marched on because they thought that signaled the arrival of the Austrian army there to help the city when you're facing your worst day the scariest moment in your life, turn to God. This morning, as we begin 1 Samuel, we'll see a Jewish woman named Hannah who did just that. The background of 1 Samuel, although we know that this book kind of gives us the beginnings of the monarchy in Israel, how kings were developed, how Samuel anointed Saul first and then David second, and we, we know that, but the book actually begins during the end of the time of the judges. And when you think of the times of the judges, I know you think of uh, friendly neighbors and children riding their bikes up and down the streets and just, you know, great friends and family everywhere. And now you know better than that. The times of the judges were depressing, heartbreaking, shocking, brutal, gruesome, uh... For three or four hundred years after Joshua led Israel into the Promised Land, the nation of Israel just went through these sad cycles. They would enjoy rest in the Promised Land for a while, but then they would turn from God, they would rebel against Him. God would then discipline His children through oppression. Eventually Israel would cry out to God for deliverance, and God in His grace and mercy would raise up a judge who would help deliver the nation. And it just That cycle just kept repeating itself. It was a very dark time in Israel's history. In fact, the author of Judges ended that book by making this statement about life during that time. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The statement about there being no king in Israel, obviously it, it... sets us up towards the coming monarchy that one day there will be a a king in Israel. So we we understand that from the end of the book of Judges, kind of looking forward to that. But it's more than just a statement of looking ahead to Saul and David, etc. It's a statement that said God was not their king. They had rejected the leadership of God in their lives and in their nation. And that's exactly what God told Samuel in chapter 8 of 1st Samuel, when the people are crying out for a king and Samuel's upset about it, he does not like this, the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7 of 1st Samuel 8, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. When people reject the leadership of God and do whatever their eyes want to do, Wickedness and evil will rule the land. It was true thousands of years ago, and it's true today. If you reject God's leadership, wickedness will reign. And First Samuel starts during those times. It's at the end of the times of the judges. And I mentioned this last week that during this deep and dark time in Israel's history... God will affect the situation not with an army, but with a child being born. That's it. Just one life. So don't ever think that you can't make a difference, that, well, God can't really use me to do something. He can. If you'll give your life to him and serve him, God can use you. And so this morning we'll see Samuel's mother, Hannah, praying before Samuel is ever born in her most trying time. So, look at the first three verses of 1 Samuel. We're introduced to a man named Elkanah and his family. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, say that three times fast, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children. But Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. We're told about this man, Elkanah, and we're told in verse 2 that he had two wives. And we may think, well, was that, was that right for him to have two wives? No. It was factual. It's accurate. He did have two wives, but it was wrong. It was more accepted culturally than it is today. But just because the culture that you're in accepts something does not mean that it's right. Just because the culture is okay with something does not mean that God is okay with it. You can can apply that to the American culture that we're in right now. Our culture sadly accepts things that are abominations to God. God is the standard for righteousness, not society. It's true today, it was true back then. God designed and instituted marriage to be between one man and one woman. But remember, this is the time of the judges. Elkanah's polygamy shouldn't maybe surprise us that much, really. He had two wives. It was a fact. One was Hannah who had no children. One was Peninnah who did. And we'll see more about the family dynamic in just a few verses. But I love verse 3 because it's just so early in the story, but it gives a, a glimmer of hope in, in my eyes a little bit because, yes, Elkanah had sins. He wasn't perfect. We know that. None of us are. He has faults. Yes, it's in the time of the judges. But Elkanah is not an idol worshiper. He still trusts in the true and living God. And every year he takes his family and they travel to Shiloh in order to worship the true and living God and to offer sacrifices and worship him. Aren't you glad that sinners can worship God? We wouldn't have a a prayer otherwise. So Elkanah, this sinner, just like us, he goes and worships God with his family. And in verse 4 and 5, we'll kind of read what they do when they go to Shiloh. Verse 4 and 5 says, And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. In the Old Testament, when a peace offering was made, and that seems to be maybe what Elkanah was doing uh, because of the feast that they had, when a man offered a peace offering to the Lord, most of that offering was given back to him. And, and then he and his family would, would kind of have a feast unto the Lord and be thankful for that. And, and so that seems to be what Elkanah did. But the way he divided the food up when it was given back to him was shocking. We're told that Penina and her children received their share. It says portions, it's just their share. Um, what was fair to them, it was right. Elkanah did not short Penina and her children. It was, they were given what they deserved, their normal portion. But Hannah, it says a worthy portion. The idea is there is a, a double portion, more than the normal, standard, acceptable share of food. And the Bible says that Elkanah did this because he loved Hannah. And what makes those actions so shocking that he would divide the food up that way and even really the statement about his love for Hannah is the fact that Hannah had no children and yet Penina does. Multiple children. We know she's got sons and daughters. Children were everything in the ancient world, especially in ancient Israel. It's not just family, which that's big enough and important enough anyway. But in ancient Israel, children were your workforce. They were your protection. They were your retirement plan. Having a lot of children meant you had a great 401K because when you got older, you had a lot of children who could protect you and take care of you. Children were everything. And so we would expect, and society would expect, if any wife was going to be given a double portion, it's going to be Penina. Because she has at least borne Elkanah sons and daughters, Hannah, nothing. But that's not what Elkanah does. Hannah receives the double portion. And at the end of verse 5, we learned that Hannah's state of being, it wasn't just that she hadn't had children yet, she wasn't going to. She was physically unable, she was barren. It says that the Lord had shut up her womb, they weren't just waiting around. It just wasn't going to happen. And in our our culture today, it's not uncommon. It's not frowned upon for a woman to have no children. But even today, which is a completely different culture from ancient Israel, it's still an extremely difficult burden for a woman who desires children but is unable to bear. Maybe that was you. Maybe you know someone who's gone through that. It is absolutely devastating and heartbreaking and a very, very tough situation to go through. And the same was true in ancient Israel. But but adding to the individual heartbreak was the way society viewed that woman. In the ancient Eastern cultures, if a woman could not bear a child, she was looked, looked upon as being cursed by God. One author says, and I've... I think I read this same quote a few months ago when we looked at Elizabeth and Zechariah, about Elizabeth. One author says, In Israel, children were a mark of the blessing of God, and barrenness was the sign of divine reproach, displeasure, his curse. And so a barren Israeli woman had to deal with her own struggle, but also the sting of society. And other people would have whispered about Hannah. They would have taunted her. They would have maybe even shunned her and wondered in their minds, maybe even out loud, what evil has Hannah done to bring upon herself this curse of God? When in reality, that wasn't true at all. But Elkanah, in spite of the way society would have looked at Hannah, he loved her so much. And he gave her, not Penina, the double portion at the feast. His love for Hannah was not dependent upon whether or not she could provide him with children. I think that's unconditional love. It didn't matter what Hannah could do for Elkanah. He loved her anyway. He loved her. But how do you think it made Peninnah feel? To see this woman who can't even bear Elkanah children and she gets the double portion? It infuriated her. And she was determined to make Hannah's life miserable. Look at verse 6 through 8. "'And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah her husband to her, "'Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not?' And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Understandably, Panina feels slighted. She feels, she's upset. She's angry at the situation. And in verse 6, she is called the adversary. Some of you have a translation that says rival. This is the only time in the Old Testament this word is used And it's a term that was specifically used in polygamous marriages. It literally means rival wife or competitor wife. The only time in the Old Testament it's used. And in these polygamous marriages, the rival wife enjoyed full marital status, but in the eyes of the husband, she was lower. And so think about that for a minute. Even though Penina has children and Hannah doesn't, Panina's the rival wife. Not Hannah. It's completely opposite of what society would expect out of that relationship. Panina's the one with the lower status in the eyes of Elkanah, and she knows it. She's not blind. She sees the double portion that Hannah receives every year when they go to Shiloh. It's not a secret of Elkanah's love for her and it infuriated her and so she provoked Hannah severely, mercilessly taunted Hannah about her inability to bear a child, oppressed her for not being able to give Elkanah an heir. Verse 7 lets us know it happened every year. Even the trip to Shiloh to worship God didn't give Hannah a break. It seems that it maybe made it worse. Because then Panina would see that double portion yet again and just be reminded of how much Elkanah loved Hannah. And she just let her have it. And Hannah, understandably, became very, very upset. She would weep. And she would be so distraught to the point that she couldn't even enjoy the double portion set before. Have you ever been so upset that you really didn't have an appetite? That's Hannah. And that's when they go to Shiloh to worship. Can you imagine coming to church and being made to feel worse about yourself? And I'm not, I'm not talking about feeling worse because we have a greater awareness of our sin because of the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit or because God's Word has penetrated our heart. That's a good conviction. That's a good feeling worse about yourself because it ought to turn us to God. But that's not what was going on here What if you walked into church and you felt unwelcomed and unloved because people persistently pelted you with your shortcomings, your insecurities, and your deficiencies, things that you can't help? How many of you want to go to a church like that? No. We would respond like Hannah did, it would hurt. It would be brutal to constantly face that. We may weep, and it would be hard to worship. And that's what Hannah dealt with. And that's how she felt she couldn't even eat. And this was supposed to be a worshipful thing, this feast that they were having. But being the loving husband that he was, Elkanah in verse 8 attempted to comfort Hannah, right? What's wrong? Why are you crying? And then he says, am not I better to you, to to thee, than ten sons? Elkanah loved her. We know that. He cared for her. He gave her everything she needed. He didn't harbor any ill will towards Hannah. He had no regrets about marrying her. Look, you you may not have children, Hannah, but but you've got me. Am I not better than ten sons? I know Elkanah's intentions were good. I know he loved Hannah. But I think that's sometimes a typical male response when your wife is upset. Men, when your wife is truly hurting and upset, it's not the time to remind her of how good of a husband she has. Am not I better to you than ten sons? Honey, at least you married me. It can't be that bad, right? Don't minimize your spouse's troubles and problems. And I know Elk and I had good intentions. Be there for them, husbands and wives be that be that shoulder they can cry on be that helper that they need uh, and don't don't remind them of at least they've got you you know maybe they'll maybe you being there and comforting them will do that for them you know typical male response there by Elkanah I think in verse 9 through 12 though we'll read that his his attempts to comfort Hannah they were unsuccessful it didn't work she's still distraught she's still hurt so much and is in a terrible situation so where do you turn you're in the worst situation you've ever been in. You're hurting more than you've ever hurt. Where do you turn? Hannah turned to God in prayer. Look at verse 9 through 12. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the infliction of thine handmaid, and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. He's watching her. Hannah turned to God in prayer. There is never a situation so bad or so big that you cannot turn to the Almighty God in prayer. Whatever that situation is in your life, you can turn to God. In fact, when we're hurt and when we're troubled, God wants us to turn to Him. He wants us to pour our hearts out to Him. There's no better refuge in a storm than God. How many psalms do you think of when you think about that? How many times does the psalmist cry out during distressing times for God to be His shield and His comfort and His his refuge? David wrote Psalm 86, and I want to read just a few verses from that psalm, and I'm kind of picking and choosing here, but, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. That's just one psalm. psalm's filled with things like that. When you're scared and you're troubled and you're hurt, you don't know where else to turn. Turn to God. And pour your heart out to Him. And notice that Hannah did that in verse 10 while she was upset. She was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Do not be ashamed to approach God when you're vulnerable. You don't have to, quote, get it together before you approach your heavenly Father in prayer. He knows how upset you are. He understands how much you're hurting. He knows how heavy the weight is. Your private prayers don't have to be polished. Just pour your heart out. Say, yeah, but I'm I'm crying so much. That's okay. There's no reason to be ashamed or embarrassed because God understands more than anyone and He loves you more than anyone. In the midst of her uh, struggles, Hannah turned to God in prayer, and her prayer was one of very humble faith. You notice that three times in her prayer she referred to herself as the Lord's handmaid. Just your servant. It almost becomes redundant in English to say handmaid so many times in a row there. She knew she was nothing more than the Lord's servant, and her prayer is actually a vow. She vowed, That if God would intervene, she knew the only thing that would change her circumstances was God. And if God would intervene and bless her with a son, she said, I I vow to separate him and give him back to you, Lord. The vow that she's talking about, about no razor being on his head, is is in Numbers chapter 6, what we call the the Nazarite vow. That 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 son would, would be set apart completely for the Lord. If God would look upon her and give her a son, she would give her son right back to God. That's really the truly remarkable part about Hannah's prayer, if you think about it. That even in her weakest state, and when she was hurting the most, her prayer is still an unselfish prayer. Isn't that pretty amazing? Yes, she wanted a son. I get that. But she says, I'll give him right back to you. And God would receive glory from that. So even at her weakest point, her prayer is unselfish. It's pretty awesome. While she's praying, Eli starts watching this woman. And look at verse 12 through 14. We know Hannah's prayer, it was private. It was between her and God. It wasn't for show. I doubt she even knew Eli was there. She's so upset, she probably didn't even see him sitting there. But Eli saw Hannah. verse 12 through 14, And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought that she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. Hannah's extremely distraught. She's weeping. She's probably shaking. Her lips are moving, but there's no sound coming out. And Eli's watching this woman and thinking, She's drunk. How dare somebody get drunk and come to the temple to worship? And so he views this as a a teaching opportunity, and he rebukes her for her drunkenness. You need to clean up your act, woman. Put the wine away. The Bible warns us about alcohol, but that had nothing to do with Hannah's situation. We know that. I love Hannah's response in verse 15 through 16. Hannah answered and said, "No, my lord, I am not a woman of sorrowful. uh, I, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. I love that response. I'm a sorrowful woman." I haven't been pouring alcohol into my body. I've been pouring my heart out to God. I'm not emptying bottles of wine. I'm emptying my soul. I'm hurt. I'm grieving. That's that's why you're seeing me like this. Don't think that I'm some bad, evil, wicked woman. I'm just hurting. I'm pouring my heart out to God. So once Eli understood that, in verse 17, he wished that, Hannah would have peace. And essentially says, I hope God answers your prayer. Look at verse 17. Then Eli said, answered and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. He wished her peace and essentially, I hope God gives you your request. I hope he answers your prayer that you're praying for. And verse 18 is pretty amazing. She said, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went, went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad." Huh. We know how the story ends. Hannah didn't. She got up and walked away, but nothing had changed. She was still childless. She would still return to Panina, and her harsh words. She would still be face to face with all of Panina's children, having none of her own. She was still empty. Maybe not so much empty anymore because I believe God filled her with his peace. Just like Eli wished. Nothing had changed yet. And yet her countenance is not sad anymore. The only thing that changed was that she prayed. She had poured her heart out to God. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 4. I read these verses earlier. God has promised to give us peace if we'll pour our hearts out to Him in prayer. He's promised us that. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 through 7. Be careful or be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That word request is a very specific word. These are very public, uh, private prayers between you and God. Specific things. You say, okay, if I pour my heart out to God, then He'll change everything. He'll intervene. The pain will go away or something will happen. Well, maybe. God has the power to change your situation, but he might not. Even if he chooses not to for whatever good and perfect reason that he has, he has promised to do something, and that's in verse 7. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When you pray to God about everything, His peace will guard and keep your heart and mind. And that's a promise. It's not contingent upon God granting your specific request. It's contingent upon you pouring your heart out. That takes a lot of the pressure off. You don't have to approach God in your private prayer with your guard up. You don't have to approach Him and pretend like you're somebody that you're not. Try to impress Him with how spiritual you are. He already knows better. He knows you. Don't think that you can earn God's peace through a good prayer. He gives His peace because of His grace, just because you pour your heart out to Him and rely upon Him and trust Him. If you pour your heart out, his peace will come. And that's what Hannah did. She was vulnerable, she was miserable, but she was truthful. And she just poured her heart out to God. And even though her situation had not changed yet, but she doesn't know it's going to for sure. She doesn't know this. We know the end of the story. Even though it hadn't changed at all, she got up and wasn't sad anymore. God gave Hannah peace even before Samuel was born. Because she laid everything at the feet of her Lord. You say, that's unbelievable. I can't even grasp how amazing that is. Neither could Paul. The peace of God that passes understanding. We can't even wrap our, our minds around how wonderful God's peace is. I've experienced that in my life and I know you've experienced it in your life. Unexplainable peace during troublesome times. But notice the very end of verse 7 in Philippians 4. Through Christ Jesus. Only believers in Jesus Christ can claim that promise. We only have peace with God only through Jesus Christ. And God's peace guards us only in and through Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're at war with your Creator. You're at war with God. And you're destined for hell. But He sent His Son because He loved you. He sent His Son to die for you on the cross to give His life for you So that if you'll repent and trust Him, the war's over. You're at peace with God through Jesus Christ. And when you face trying times in your life, God's peace will guard your heart and your mind through Christ if you'll just pour your heart out, if you'll just rely upon Him. If you're here today and you're lost, we're praying for your salvation. If you're here and you know Jesus... On your worst days and on your toughest times, do not turn to things of this world. Do not turn to alcohol. Do not turn to drugs. Do not turn to something that can numb the pain and make you forget about it. Turn to a God who's big enough to take away the pain. Or big enough to give you peace even though the situation remains unchanged. Don't turn to the things of this world. Turn to God in prayer. Will you stand? Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, and we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example that we can see in Hannah's life and that when we're troubled, for us to turn to you. Lord, we thank you for the peace that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to just live with that in the front of our minds every day. Lord, help us to be good witnesses for you. And Lord, have your weight in this invitation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.